0: Hello and welcome to season two of Talking to the Top, a podcast made by students for students. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Ed.
1: My name is Freddie.
0: And we will be your hosts. Throughout these episodes, we will give you an insight into the lives and minds of incredibly successful people in their respective fields, allowing you to learn more about the world that lies ahead of us all, and most importantly, how our brilliant guests got to where they are today. So sit back, relax and join us as we dive deep into the stories of these amazing individuals, uncovering the secrets to their success and exploring the many twists and turns of their careers.
1: We wanted to kick off the new season with a bang, and I think it's safe to say that our guest today does just that. He's probably best known for his role on the hit BBC series, Dragon's Den, but you may know him as the chairman of retail giant Ryman. Theo is not only an incredible entrepreneur, but an individual with an inspiring story to tell. Ed and I found this conversation eye-opening, so we hope you enjoy it as much as we did.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Theo. It's amazing to have you. Such a privilege.
1: It's a pleasure, chaps.
0: So, to get started, I think it's always useful if we take it right back to the beginning. So, what would you say is the most important piece of early context about your life that shaped who you are now and the career you went on to follow?
2: Oh, my God. I suppose uh, it's going to be interesting. This I—I I sense from the conversation I'm hearing in the background. You've got a teacher there as well. Uh, who have you got? He's
0: yeah. Mister Crawford, so he helps out with our editing very kindly. Right. Well, Mister
2: Crawford, I'm sure you can hear me as well. Um, <laughs> school was an interesting place. Uh, it was—I don't know—it's pretty shit. I think is the is the, um, is the words I'm going to use. 150,000 years ago, which I'm sure that's not the case. And Mr. Crawford is really tuned in and all the rest of the (laughs) teachers are tuned into this. Um, 150,000 years ago, when everything was in black and white and covered in smog and you went to school, there was no such thing as dyslexia. All there was, was bright kids and thick kids. And in the middle, there were some average kids. Sadly for me, I sat very firmly in the thick kids' column. Not because I was thick. And anybody with half an ounce of brain at the school would have realised if I was thick, my group or my friendship group would not have been the bright kids. So my whole friendship group was the bright kids because I could converse with them, had mm. loads of things in common with them. But when it got to the classroom... I was rubbish. Mm. So i go from extreme where there were my, we were all equals and, you know, we were peers. But if we were in a classroom, they could do things I couldn't get anywhere near. So I got shoved year after year down and down and down to, and that wasn't because, by the way, that wasn't because of effort. My effort was, I would say, twice as much as the other kids.
0: Mm. You had to do that to be able to... Honestly,
2: I'd put twice as much effort not to even be average. Mm. So that's how difficult it was. And as you got a bit older, you really learn, you adapt. Kids are quite resilient and you're, you're evolving in your mind, your brain's evolving, you're bright, you know, you can hold a conversation, you could uh, ask questions, you could be incredibly logical about everything. But come to reading, writing, and absorbing information that's been told to you by the by the teacher, I mean, honestly, teacher could write things on the board, they could read it out, I could copy it into my textbook, it still hasn't gone in, and then the spelling was just a shocker, absolute shocker, and then the speed of reading was excruciatingly slow and actually copying something from the board. You know, people would do paragraphs at the time. It took me to do a line. So you go through yourself questioning your own sanity at times. And I think the thing that kept me going is that my peer group were happy to leave that alone and, and not use that against me. And so I still had my friendship group that sat in different forms. We weren't in the same classes anymore, but we still did everything. Outside school together, I had the same interests. I could compete in all the things that were verbally challenging things or sports things or interests, but I just couldn't cope with that classroom environment. And I didn't know what it was. At one stage, I accepted that maybe I was thick, but things changed. Things changed later on in school, which was for the better. But quite honestly, I spent the early part of my school career, just looking for solutions, looking for workarounds, finding another way of getting from A to B and from B to C that didn't involve doing it the way everyone else was being taught. And, and that really was some of the biggest challenge I had uh, at school. But what that gave me is the ability to problem solve. So later on in going to work and going through a working uh, environment, it was a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. I could problem-solve much, much quicker than other people. I could see the angles. I could see the opportunities because I spent so much of my life looking for them and focusing. And I knew the minute I sat on that chair, I had to do things. I had to find things. I had to find another way. And I I class it as my superpower. I still class it as my superpower. Mm -hmm. And that came from that moment in school. But, of course, even with things improving, I still left at the age of 16. And I still got the most horrendous final sign off from <laughs> my year head. She signed it off something like Theo is a pleasant and well liked young man with many qualities. But unfortunately, there's no qualifications in this. Get lost. Goodbye. And the last two years of school, when I said things got better, because I was then 14, I managed to get involved with the student union. I managed to um, get involved in setting up the school tuck shop because nobody wasn't bothered whether I was in their class or not. And most of the time, my form very rarely had a regular teacher. There would be relief teachers, somebody else coming in to take the lessons because there was no investment in us. So nobody missed me. I was there, signed in, I was in the register, but nobody actually missed me not being in the classes. So I was allowed just to get on with it and do my union stuff, tuck shop, wander around the school, because I was never any real trouble. It was just accepted. I could just wander aimlessly, doing stuff with keys to cupboards and, or, you know, organise before playtime, organise the shop, put things away, hang around. Nobody said, why isn't he in class? So actually, it was a great grounding in the end.
1: So where did that then leave you? When you left school at 16. Ah, you see, that's when it went wrong again. <laughs> okay.
2: So we had these two years, the final two years of school, where I left with a Scottish certificate in colouring in maps. Geography, rather. Was, uh, but the teacher was Scottish, and I sat a Scottish exam. because That's the only one she thought I would pass. I was very <laughs> good at colouring in between the lines. And I liked her. And I went to her lessons. It's amazing mm. that, isn't it? Someone puts a bit of effort into you. So it wasn't, so it got better. It, it did get better, except when I actually then left, when the world was my oyster with my Scottish certificate in colouring in maps. I thought, I need a job. I'm bright. I've got some confidence. I've been running the school touch shop, I've been running the union, right?
1: You knew what you were good at.
2: Yeah. I can do things, I can make things happen. I'm a very, very practical person. You know, I get things done and I never leave them alone a job to do. The school gave me a job to do. Whatever job I had to do, it got done. No Mm. one had to supervise me. I thought, you know, I think I want to uh, work in the city, make loads of money. I lived in a council flat in the middle of London, in a tenement block. Needed to, you know, eventually, hopefully, get my own place. In those days, you either phoned or you send a stamped address envelope to a Mm. company, they sent you back an application form in the stamped addressed envelope. You filled it in, you sent it back to them, and then you waited to hear whether you've got an interview or not.
0: Not exactly a quick process.
2: I must have sent a hundred of these. And there's no career guidance. I probably got less than 10 responses. And of those 10 responses, probably got three interviews, of which I didn't get any. So now I'd left school. I'm at home waiting for postage to turn up. That was a highlight of my day. And when the envelope came back, you're like, your heart's pumping. Don't know if it's good news, bad news, the job in it. In the end, I discovered you can go to this place. It's called Employment Agencies. And there was were offices. And I, I went through the newspaper, looked at the newspaper in the job section, found this job, Employment Agency in the city. And I went there. And uh, I borrowed my brother's suit that was far too big for me. And I sat there all day while they made phone calls to send me out for interviews. So now we're a little bit more instant, which is good. And eventually uh, I got a job as um, assistant to the tea stirrer and filing clerk in a Lloyds of London brokerage, insurance brokerage. Quite honestly, I would have taken any job by now. I'd now lost all confidence. I now believed I was thick. And I was destined to never be employable. Anyway, so I was really pleased I got the job. I took the job. I didn't work out at the time. The only reason I got the job was because the government were giving companies a subsidy. If if they took on a school leaver, the government paid their wages for the first year. £1,200 a year. £100 a month. After taxes, you were left with 80 quid. Anyway, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was incredibly popular. But when the year finished, they took me to one side and said, look, we don't know how we're going to live without you, but we're going to try. And um, we parted company because whilst I made great tea, I was entertaining. I got on well with everybody. I had a great work ethic. They couldn't find a bloody file anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> because who employs a dyslexic to be a filing clerk? <laughs> so so I think on the basis of that, that was the main part of my job. I didn't progress there. But it was my very first job. It was a learning curve and it was good for me because it allowed me to mature and understand and start making a network of people I know.
0: Touching upon some of the stuff you were talking about there with the key qualities that you had that you kind of brought to the table, I listened to an interview you did with the Oxford Union recently and you said that the key character traits you feel make you successful are your passion, attention to detail, and rejection of the status quo. Where do you feel you got those character traits from?
2: Um, listen, you can grow up in life and things don't go your way. You can grow up in life with a chip on your shoulder, or in fact, two chips on each shoulder, and you can start being bitter about it. I think my passion and desire was naturally built in by my requirement to be accepted as part and parcel of my own peer set, my own friendship group. And I could have just laid down and accepted that that was it, make a new group of friends, most of which probably ended up in prison anyway, because they didn't go to school a lot. At least I went, it just didn't go to the classes. But my desire to have my own dignity, I think more than anything else at the time, and to prove not just to other people, to myself, I was every bit as good as everyone else. yeah. And yes, I came from a difficult background, but that shouldn't really matter because as far as my requirement to buy the right clothes, keep with my peer group, again, I dealt with that by getting a job. Working, I used to have three jobs as a, as a kid in those days. Um, I couldn't make enough money to buy the latest shirt, latest pair of trousers, because my parents couldn't afford that. But they'd support me in me going to work and let me keep the money. So, I had a good at work ethic. That was never an issue. And I always love to learn. I mean, even today, I like to learn. Um, so, there's a lot of that built into you, and some you're molded in your circumstances. But once you go down that route, I don't think there's ever, ever any turning back. Whenever I do something, it's with passion, with desire, and with finish in mind and success.
1: I know you touched on just then talking about your parents. Are there any other influential people on your journey to getting to where you are right now?
2: You know, I was gonna say that's a hard question, but it's actually not. It's an easy question. You learn from everybody, everybody you meet, every experience, good and bad, you learn on the way. It's Very rarely it's one person, one not one thing in life. It's never a silver bullet. Don't look for a silver bullet. Silver bullets don't exist it's always loads of little things and they all come together to make things happen. It's never one thing. So if I see a problem, I never assume the solution is one thing. Mm-hmm. If I've got to solve a problem, I'll start from the basis, there'll be a lot of things. Don't sit there thinking, oh, I've just got to find the silver bullet that's the solution to this. Very rarely one thing. There's lots of moving parts and laughs about lots of moving parts. Lots of people you meet on the way and you don't even realise that those people influence you. So much later on in life, the lessons that you learn from talking to them, dealing with them, spending time with them. It's never one thing.
0: It sounds like your 16 year old self, that was quite a turbulent time for you, you know, leaving school. Now you know what you know. If you could go back and sit in front of him right now, what would you tell him?
2: Don't worry, it'll be all right. And I did worry. I applied to join the police. I failed the exam. Wasn't bright enough. I applied to join BT as a telephone engineer. I failed the exam. Wasn't bright enough. Was I really not bright enough? I just couldn't sit and do the exam. Now, one thing I did forget to tell you is I was exceptionally good at maths at school. Mm -hmm. During those last two years, I moved from the bottom set of maths to the top set of maths, even though I was in the bottom set of everything else. And that happened because a particular teacher realized that this is a bright lad. He's got some issues somewhere down the line and took me to one side, spent some time with me. Whilst he was not trained or understood anything to do with dyslexia, realized that I was in the wrong class for maths number one. And actually I'm capable of a lot more than is expected of me in those classes.
0: It just goes to show how influential certain people can be to you.
2: Mr Priddle, that was his name. He was head of house. Um, and he, he, he was one of those people that came into take a class because we didn't have a teacher. So he was head of house and just came in to cover. His specialist subject was uh, engineering. And I think he was doing, I forgot what class, probably in English. But of course, that wasn't his specialist subject. And he was a naval man. He was just chatting to us about, he had a whole full set of beard and everything. And he was talking to us about his time in the Navy, and he was talking to us about ships and boats. And he um, he said, does anybody know how ships stop? So one kid put his hands up and said, put the foot on the brakes, sir. Said, no, mm-hmm. ships done not have brakes. That one kid puts up and says, But throw the anchor out. He says, no, use the anchor to keep you in position. So I put my hand up and said, reverse the propellers. So he went, yep. That's technically that's exactly what you do. Spot on. He pulled me at the end of it. We we're chatting and took me to his room and we had a little chat. And he was looking at my paperwork and everything else. And then, re- and it was great. He said, "Right, I'm going to come back to you in a few days' time, but uh, I suggest you move some classes." And he was very instrumental in moving me to the top of maths and allowing me to follow my entrepreneurial bits yeah. and, and stuff in in the. Uh, he was my sponsor. He trusted me. So he would give me jobs to do, things to get done, which saw me through school. And I still did maths and I still did geography, still did a little bit of English. But that was a bit of a pain. And uh, all the other things I was doing.
1: I was going to say that you're arguably best known amongst a lot of our listeners for having been on Dragon's Den. How did that come about? And what did you take away from having done it?
2: Well, It came about very simply because the BBC asked me. Right. Um, I did a programme when I was chairman of Millwall Football Club. I did a programme, uh, they approached Millwall for him to do a, a back to the floor. It was a programme where you take the boss and you put him doing remedial jobs and see how they yeah. cope. And uh, that was around at the time. They asked if I would do it. And as our PR people at the club said, yeah, that sounds good, good publicity for the club. And I did that and it went well. And when I retired from football, this programme, Dragons Den, aired once and they were recasting it because it was a pilot. And they came and saw me and um, asked me if I would do it. Simple as that.
0: And when those people walk in the room, are there any key traits that you're looking for when they're presenting their pictures? Uh, yeah,
2: I think I've learned that early doors. I made some big mistakes in investing in, in businesses and people on Den, But as time went on, I got it down to a fine art. I was mm-hmm. very pleased. And it all starts with... Doesn't matter how good your proposition is, if I don't like you, or I don't think you're gonna be a good partner, I don't think you're gonna be work, you're gonna work hard,
1: mm-hmm. or you're
2: gonna be able to deliver this. Doesn't matter how good it is, I'm not gonna invest. I would rather invest in an average business with a really good person than a good business idea with a poor person. And that worked for me from then onwards. So it doesn't matter what you had, if I just think one, I didn't want to work with you. Or I didn't think you could deliver. doesn't matter how good your idea is.
0: And what are those attributes and qualities that you think does make a good entrepreneur? Um,
2: Listen, an entrepreneur is many things. Sometimes he has to be the chief bottle washer. He has to be the accountant. He has to be the marketing director. He has to be the sales director. He'll be the stock taker. You've got to be the delivery boy. You name it. And I start with you have to have a passion for what you do because there's going to be some very difficult days. Unless you've got a passion, you're going to give up. The second mm-hmm. thing is you've got to make sure you do your homework. If you're going to compete with somebody, you better be as well-equipped as that person, as a guy you're competing, the guy or girl you're competing against. And in fact, you better be better equipped. Why mm-hmm. would you want it? I mean, who the hell wants to go into a straight fight with somebody? with a 50 50 chance you've got to be mad haven't you you've got to be mad start the cards in your favor get an advantage and you've got better chance doesn't mean you're going to win statistically you're going to win more than you're going to lose yeah yeah
0: and you mentioned passion just now and a lot of the time businesses talk about their whys or the motives behind what they do so what would you say your why is and how has that changed
2: well, when I originally started working, I just needed to make money. I just wanted to make money. I wanted to live the life I'd seen on television. I've seen other people live, get out of the council flat, maybe own your own home, have a garden, maybe get married, maybe have children. Very simple stuff, really. I didn't have massive dreams of yachts and planes. It was simple dreams. They are achievable. They weren't unachievable. There were still dreams, because nobody in my family had any of that. So there were still dreams, but they weren't unachievable dreams. So we started from there. And, of course, then you get to the stage where one day you realise you don't have to get out of bed because you've got enough money. So what do you do? Do you stay in bed? But if you're doing something you're passionate about, you bounce out of bed, and the money becomes a byproduct. It's a scorecard. You know, you do your uh, your accounts at the end of the year. Your accountant sends it into the tax plan. You pay your tax. And, you know, the boy done good that year or the boy didn't do good. It's a scorecard. That's not why you're at work. That's yeah. not why you do what you do anymore.
0: So what is your why now? Is it just that passion that you love what you're doing so much?
2: What would I do if I wasn't doing what I do? i will probably get some form of mischief. I, I want to do what I do. I get up in the morning. I've got. I'm very lucky. I've got such a wide variety of interests, both in business and in pleasure, um, and I often mix them together. By the way, football yeah. was a passion, you know. Fantasy football. Have your own football team. Brilliant. You get bored with that. Um, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm involved in sports businesses still. I'm involved in finance business. I'm involved in shopkeeping, which I love. You know, lots of marketing, lots of different businesses I've I've involved in. I've um, There's mm. charities, I mean, Chancellor of a University I work with. So I look forward to that. I've got various charities that I support. I've got my own charity support. I do media interviews. I keep myself very, very busy.
0: Yeah.
1: How do you try and uh, manage that time with your hobbies and also your mental health, which I know is uh, a big conversation at the moment. I manage it on the
2: basis I can, and I manage it on the basis that I'm very lucky. If you could do all the things that you like doing all all day long, every day, you'd manage it, wouldn't you? Mental health is a very important subject, and again, it's one of those subjects that wasn't, you know, wasn't given much uh, credence in my day. With some very disparaging words being used to describe neuro neurodiversity in mm-hmm. any form, uh, and it is important. But it's, it's a societal thing. It's very important, and we're not all that wired the same. Mm. That's a fact. We shouldn't all be expected to have the same output, yeah. the same delivery. I think we should all be expected to put the same effort, though.
0: Also, society kind of thrives better because we are neurodivergent and we have you know, different people. If everyone was the same, then the world would be pretty boring.
2: Oh, tell me about it. I mean, if it was all me, I'd kill each other. But um, <laughs> so it is an important subject. And I think we've got to be I, I think there's that fine balance. I, I'm here at work we, we recognize uh, mental diversity and, and and that's important. And we recognize it and we recognize that we're all very different and we all give something different. But you've got to start from the basis that no one person is an island um and my area was you shut the and you get on with it right (laughs) doesn't matter now that works for some people by the way but it doesn't work for everybody and of course what do you do then you do do you cast all those other people to one side and not take into account their needs and their different needs it's a very very it's not a conversation we can have now because it's quite touching it's um affected people close to me and people I know and family over the years. So I, I'm going to get them to my soapbox about it. But all I ask from anybody is effort. And if they can do the effort and the passion, then I certainly don't expect the same output from everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a role for everybody because we're all different we're all different cogs, different size do different things
1: and you've just got to find your you've got to find your role and own it you, you like do you
2: and I think that's important So, and, I, and certainly not sit there punishing yourself mm. because you're not as good as that him or not as good as her or you're not as strong willed as him or her we're different everyone's got to find their place and contentment Is a wonderful
1: thing. You have spoken before a little bit about mistakes. What would you consider to be the most valuable mistake you've made? Again, there isn't one. These are these are are binary questions. Mm
2: -hmm. There's no. There isn't binary answers to life. Mm. Even from life to death, there's a great big sphere, a spectrum of different levels of consciousness. You know, there isn't one thing. Every experience you have, good and bad, leaves a scar and leaves a message. And I talk about, I'm just recruiting a senior role at the moment, and I was giving our HR director, I was giving her the brief, and I finished it off by saying, and they've got to have scars on their back. So don't show me a perfect CV. Show me a CV of somebody who's had scars on their back. So every mistake, every good thing, every bad thing, every turn that went well, every turn that didn't go well, all part of that experience.
0: You spoke earlier about when you were kind of 16, you really struggled with your confidence when you were writing all of those letters and getting that rejection, how do you deal with rejection and have you ever struggled with imposter syndrome or self-doubt and how do you face this challenge?
2: Yeah, the most successful people I know, and we, we often talk about it because I'm happy to talk about it. I suffered terribly from imposter syndrome. The fact that you're even interviewing me now, you know, I'm a bit on autopilot with you. If I had to <laughs> stop and think um, or if I'm on a stage and there's, 3,000 people hanging on my every word. I'm thinking, oh, shit. Why are they even here? Why do they want to listen to me? Am I faking it? And then, of course, normally when you're doing something like that, it's because you're there to talk about something that you know a little bit about. So you go into autopilot. If you stop to think about it, I start saying, well, half the people there are better than me anyway at what I'm talking about. Most successful people that I know, self-made successful people, go through this. And even Olympians who have won gold medals and they've got a medal to prove that they were the fastest, could jump further, could row faster,
1: could even they
2: question how they got to where they got and did they deserve
1: it. So what would you say is success for you and to know that you have made it? Uh, listen,
2: um, when I when I get there, I'll tell you.
0: So when you were talking earlier about successful people you know, how would you define success? Because that's a conversation that we've had. Because obviously people think about monetary value, but for us, I don't think you can say that based on your monetary value, that necessarily makes you successful.
2: Being successful is being the best. This is this cliche, you're going to hate this. It's not what you want to hear. It's been the best you that you can be, right? And I'm never going to be good enough to be the best I can be. I'm still striving for that. Even now at the age of 64, if I'm playing, I like to play sport. If I'm playing tennis, or playing paddle, I took up recently, a couple of years ago, paddle, which I don't know if you guys play. It's great fun. You know, I'm competing with 18-year-olds and and I'm still pushing the bow and I get so pissed if I lose, you know, my team lose, even though, you know, we're giving 80 years to the other side. I want to be the best me at all time, whether it's in competition or whether it's in achievements, you know. I don't think I'll ever be good enough or ever arrive to that stage when, you know, I've been successful. I don't, I don't know. I'm better, I'm better than I was.
1: Has there been a selection of projects that have really excited you and you've really managed to invest yourself in that have driven you to continue? And uh, know you are able to tell us a little bit about them? I think
2: getting involved in football, which is something that most of your listeners will, be, will understand. It's a hell of a big sport out there. Most people have been touched by it, by even the boys or girls. Uh, women's football now has been superb I've been sponsoring women. I started sponsoring women's football about 15 years ago you know when no one would even listen um, to get involved in, a, in a, a sphere that you thought you knew something about because you follow it as a supporter and then get into the business of it and understand it and realise that you've bitten off way more than you can chew way more than you can chew and then saying, "Right, a good man must know his limitations." And I know my limitations. I've been off way more than I can chew. So how am I going to deal with it? I want to make it a success still. As I've just worked out, I'm not equipped for it. So I'm not. I'm not equipped for it. Thought that's what I wanted to, you know, do. But now, and you just breaking that whole journey down from day one to you know, retirement from it. And find just a bit like the dyslexia, find that you didn't have the tools. So I need the tools. I've got to find different tools. If I haven't got the tools that everyone else has got, I've got to find a different way of doing it. And I've got to be successful.
0: Speaking about dyslexia, that links quite nicely to my next question and talking about kind of being the best you as a form of success how would you recommend people with dyslexia kind of leverage that so that it's a strength rather than viewing it as a limitation especially when a lot of the time there's a narrative maybe from their peers that it is a limitation when that's just not true i think the
2: first thing you need to do is you can't fix anything or improve anything until you know what the problem is so for me, and I can use myself, my reading. Believe you me, I can read, right? I can read. But it's so bloody slow, the pace at which I read, and to absorb. It is, it's painful. My spelling is shocking, beyond shocking. It's does how many times you tell me, however many times I try and learn, it doesn't work. So when I realise I'm missing tools in my armoury and in my toolbox, I've got to find a solution. And the sooner you identify what it is that you, which tools you're missing, the sooner you can find a solution. So I knew I was good at numbers. I wasn't good at spelling. I was slow at reading. When I was 19, the first ever home computers started coming out. So it's a long time ago, but there were like 32k. I mean, imagine 32K, that's that's
0: like,
2: you wonder how you could ever work with 32K. And being good at maths, I knew I had to get an advantage in the job I was doing. I bought one of these, and I learned to bloody program because I thought I could gain an advantage over you because you didn't have one, and you didn't know how to do it. So until you learn, I've got an advantage on you. And I did, and I wrote programs. To help me and then of course to, to word processor with spelling i mean my god it was a lifesaver saver predictive texting i mean it's like I'm, a, I'm like a superstar now i can i can <laughs> run I, I don't need any assistance but the first thing i did when i could afford it was get a secretary because i couldn't deal with the that side of life but now you know i'm totally self-sufficient Because technology has helped me, so it's got really got over those issues. They're not as important anymore. Mm So, what I'm gonna say is, look at the tools that you have in your toolbox and find a way around fulfilling the requirement for those tools. You'll also find there's various things in your toolbox that are stronger and better than other people's. It's just as important to identify that those tools as well. So, if you identify the needs fulfill those needs, identify the strengths, exaggerate those, already you've got an advantage.
1: Mm. And obviously at the moment with a world in which online shopping is increasing hugely and people's just general internet engagement is expanding, how has that affected your retail group uh, specifically with all of your high street stores? Because I know just looking around local high streets is really sad to see the decline in many companies just being there.
2: It is. It, it, it really Retail has changed. And we haven't got time, sadly, to, to go through it in detail. But retail has changed. But if I give you an example, Robert Dyer's is 150 years old. It's one of my businesses. We've got, they've got 96 stores or something. Now, when I bought it 10 years ago, it didn't have it, an internet site, right? Now, 50% of his business comes online. 50% comes from stores. And most of the stuff we sell online, we haven't got in store because stores have walls. So it's how you marry the two together and gain the advantage of both. If we didn't embrace it, the business wouldn't survive. So you have to embrace it and work with it.
0: And sadly, we're going to have to start to wrap up. But just looking back to your time in Dragon's Den, when those entrepreneurs come in and they face challenges and setbacks in their journey, what advice would you give to them?
2: if people have setbacks in their journey.
0: Yeah. And how to do, as in how would you, how do you keep pushing on? Because I think sometimes people can get, and, get, used, get to used to it. it. It's going to happen again. Mm. <laughs> get
2: used to it. If you're an entrepreneur, you're going to have setbacks every single day. It's what happens.
0: Uh, but, I think sometimes people can, when you get a setback, obviously some people are very lucky in that they're able to just power on through that and keep going, but some people really do struggle with criticism.
2: I mean, you might struggle and that's fine. And, I, and there's areas in which I struggle. Uh, we'll go back to what we said. I know I struggle in those areas, but I just got to deal with it. You got to get on mm. with it. Just find the solution. And if you can't find the solution, you are in the wrong job. It's always been the best you and not being pigeonholed in any way. However you are as an individual, we're all different. And as always I say to people, as long as you put the effort in and be the best you, that's all that you can ever do. And the levels of success are all relevant. They're all relevant to the individual and understanding all the stuff that we spoke about earlier, your toolbox, and what you need to work on and what you need supplement on, to be supplemented. These are key, not identifying the strengths and the weaknesses of yourself and understanding them. There's a difference between understanding them and accepting them. You can understand them, but not accept that they're going to hold you back.
0: Well I think that's a nice place to leave it but thank you so much for coming on the podcast we've loved having you on it's been an absolute pleasure
1: Yeah it's it's been incredible thank
2: you You are welcome guys I wish you all the best with it
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Talking to the Top Talking to the Top is hosted and produced by myself Edward Brooke and co-hosted and edited by Freddie Feynman It was also edited by James Crawford and the music was created by Daniel Marks.